intro here. A uh, number of weeks back, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry, and these throngs, masses of people are hailing Jesus as this long-awaited king. And then we hear Jesus speak in terms of his hour had come. So uh, previously in the Gospel of John, we've, we've heard Jesus talk about how his hour is not here, his hour is coming, but now his hour has come. The time has arrived, and he explains a little bit about what that means. He talked about how he would be lifted up, and, and in saying that, he was describing the death by which he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up. And yet, then also last week, we heard about, how, heard about how Jesus has come to save. And so we hear all of this, it's kind of this weird mix of realities, the fact that Jesus is coming, being hailed as a king. His hour has come, and yet his hour coming means that he is going to be lifted up in death, and yet he's also talking about how he is going to save. So there's just this weird mix of things going on, and what we're going to find in John 13 today is Jesus is trying to give understanding to all of these things that are going on. And so we're going to pick it up in John 13, uh, pretty massive or lengthy text today. So 30 verses we're going to cover today. So John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. All right, so what I want to do is kind of provide a little bit of a summary here and set the setting, talk a little bit about the setting of all that's going on here. So Jesus is gathered together with his closest of friends to share a meal. Now throngs have gathered into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This is a celebration of God coming to his people who are enslaved in Egypt many, many years before, and rescuing them from a tyrant of a king who was oppressing them and abusing them. God heard the cry of his people, and he came to them and rescued them. So people are coming to Jerusalem for this annual celebration to celebrate the fact that God has been faithful, and he has come to rescue his people. Now Jesus, as he's celebrating this, he is eating his last supper with his disciples. Now, in the first century, meals, just generally speaking, were an intimate time for people to gather together. There was tons of symbolism that happened around meals, but in this meal here, there's even heightened expectations surrounding Jesus. There's all these things that we talk about in our introduction that are creating all this angst and tension. There's tons of emotion surrounding Jesus, surrounding the words that he has spoken about himself, what he has come to do, what he is now doing in this hour. So it's a moving time for Jesus and his disciples. Attention is high at this meal. And what's going to follow this meal is, well, it's teaching that Jesus is going to give to his disciples. It's, it's Jesus' last significant conversation with his friends. And, and so this is the night before he is going to be betrayed and arrested, which it seems weird to think about the fact that we're not going to get to his crucifixion for months yet. But that's the reality. This is the night before he's going to be arrested and betrayed. Now, in the midst of this meal that's filled with all kinds of symbolism and meaning, Jesus gets up to do something absolutely shocking. He's going to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, we've talked a couple other times earlier in this sermon series about 
how this role of washing somebody's feet was reserved for the lowest of the low in that society. There wasn't really anyone below that person who would wash someone's feet when they entered into someone's house. And this is part of what Paul writes about as it pertains to Jesus in Philippians 2 when he says that Jesus made himself nothing. Socially, the person washing somebody's feet was a nobody. They were nothing. And now we see Jesus, we see God assuming this role, the role of the lowest of the low. And this is why we find Peter objecting to Jesus washing his feet. He tells Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. So what's really clear here is Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet is extremely offensive. And Jesus knows this. He knows this very well, but he's revealing himself. He's helping his, those closest to him understand who he is, what he is about to do for them. But there's more, because there's more that his friends, and even us, need to understand about Jesus. He's revealing himself. This man, Jesus, whose father had given all things into his hands. He had come from God and was going back to God. He is God, has become a lowly servant. And this is the base of these verses. We have to feel the weight of the fact that the one who is above everything has now come under everything. All right, so the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to look at the offensiveness of Jesus' actions. And I'll look at it from two different angles, okay? From the perspective of Judas and the perspective of the other disciples and see how this then can speak to us. So first of all, let's look at Judas. It's clear throughout this story that Jesus knows Judas' intentions. Okay, so verse 2 says the devil had already put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And so Jesus, or Judas has met with the religious leaders. He's kind of come up with this agreement with them. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows the fact that he's arranged his payment with religious leaders. Verse 11 says, Jesus says, not all of you are clean. It also says that Jesus knows his intentions there. And so as he speaks about not all of you disciples are clean, he is referencing specifically Judas. He knows that Judas is not clean. And then verse 21, really explicitly, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And if we look at verses 5 and 12, those verses make it really clear that Jesus washed all of the disciples' feet. It's not like he just selected a few of them or excluded Judas from the foot washing. He washed the feet of all of his disciples. So Jesus is at the feet of Judas, washing his feet, knowing full well his intentions, knowing what Judas has already planned to do to him. So think about this in your own life. Think about an experience you've had where you know 
someone has intentionally hurt you. They've been out to get you. They've been effective in dinging you in some way. How easy is it for you to love that person? It's like the last thing you want to do, right? It is not easy at all, especially for those of us who value fairness, right? The idea of loving someone who has not loved us is abhorrent. It's a horrible thought. Looking at Judas, Judas doesn't deserve to have his feet washed. He doesn't deserve to partake of this meal with Jesus. He doesn't deserve to even be near to Jesus at all. What he deserves is probably a harsh rebuke. And yet, what we see is Jesus loving this man. We should be able to look at Judas and how Jesus is treating him and say, Jesus' love is offensive, right? If we're in Jesus' shoes, we would not want to do what he's doing. The way in which he is loving Judas is extremely offensive. These men, or sorry, so the tendency for us then is to look at Judas and contrast him with the other disciples to say, okay, Judas, he was really bad, right? But the other disciples, they, they were at least respecting, following Jesus. They had it together at some level. And, and so we might affirm their love for or to Jesus, right? But if we look closely at the disciples and how Jesus is interacting with them, we learn something about them as well. When Jesus went to wash Peter's feet, Peter was indignant. He was appalled by the idea that Jesus would come and wash his feet. But Jesus said in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So what Jesus is saying here is he is saying that all of the disciples need to be washed as well. They all need to be cleansed also. Not merely with just this physical washing, but with a spiritual cleansing. And, and here we need to remind ourselves of what John has done throughout his gospel. He continually is taking these physical examples and he's using them to point to greater spiritual realities. So he's saying, you need your feet washed to enter into this house. To be, to be washed, okay, but you also need to be cleansed, spiritually speaking. So that's where he's trying to go. But relative to Judas, these disciples might have looked good. I mean, even for us, we look at them and say, ah, they don't look that bad. But what Jesus is saying is they're not good enough. Their allegiance to Jesus, their moral goodness is not good enough. They needed washing. They needed cleansing. And so, we can look at them, and we probably would identify much more with the disciples, right? Jesus is saying, we need washing and cleansing as much as some mass murder. We're no different in that regard. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is a stumbling block. This is why in the, the verses that Emily read at the beginning of the service, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The gospel is a stumbling block. Of course, these men, 
like Judas, had sinned against God. They needed God to wash and to cleanse them. And the kicker here is God did it. He was willing to stoop to their low level and to wash them and to cleanse them, to serve them. And so what we see here is that the gospel is so good, it's offensive. The gospel is so good, it is offensive to us. You and I need to be served similarly. Jesus asked the disciples in verse 12, he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? Now, for us, think of someone that you respect, like you really respect. Maybe it's a mentor that you've had. Maybe it's a celebrity or a politician. We can talk about that one later. Maybe it's an athlete, just someone. Maybe it's a parent. Like, think of someone that you really highly respect, okay? Now, would it make you uncomfortable for them to get on their knees, take your shoes and socks off, and start washing your feet? Would that be uncomfortable for you? Or, or maybe we move this into like a, a more modern uh, example. Would it make you uncomfortable to have that person come to your house and walk straight to your bathroom and start scrubbing your toilet? Would it make you uncomfortable to have that person serve you in that way. I've talked with a number of people from Center Church recently uh, about this idea of how it can be difficult to ask for help. It can be difficult to ask people for help. And I'm not capping on just those people because I think this is a universal struggle. I think many, if not all of us, struggle with this from time to time to ask people to help us out in one way or another. So think about a project that maybe you have at your house or your apartment, or, or think about something that you're maybe just not that good, out, good at, okay? And then think about having to go to somebody and ask someone for help. Who here is excited to go ask for help? Anybody? Is anyone excited? Okay. It may feel uncomfortable to ask someone to help you with a house project. But it pales to how you've already been served by Jesus. Whatever you might ask someone to help you with is nothing compared to how Jesus comes and serves us. God became God. The sovereign God that we were singing about earlier became your servant. He has entered into your mess and you know your mess much better than I know your mess. He's entered into your mess. So, in the same way that Jesus asked his disciples, do you understand what Jesus has done to you? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Asking for help in painting a room is nothing compared to Jesus willingly dying for your sins. And so, 
do you ever find Jesus' love offensive? Do you ever find his love offensive? Like it's hard to stomach at times? Like, or that it, it kind of shocks you? Is his love for you that good? Have you ever found yourself in the midst of sinning? Okay, so while you are sinning, in the act of it, do you realize in that moment that Jesus is loving you by patiently bearing with you in that moment? It's a great exercise in the midst of your sin when you feel that, when you realize you are sinning to stop and say, or, or stop and realize what Jesus is doing in that moment. How is he viewing you? Is he chasing you with a two-by-four? No, he's patiently bearing with you. His love for you and I is offensive. If we rightly understand it, it should, at times, at times, offend us. It should shock us. And if it doesn't, if Jesus' love never offends us, maybe, maybe we don't really understand how good it really is. And maybe that is why it's hard for us at times to ask for help as well. Because if we understand how Jesus has loved us, it should make it so much easier to ask for help in whatever project that might be. All right. So the gospel is so good, it's offensive. Secondly, I want to kind of keep pushing down this road a little bit. But I want to push into the idea that the gospel, and when I'm saying gospel, I'm talking about the good news of Jesus and his sacrificial love for us on the cross paying for our sins, the gospel is not something that we do. The gospel is not something that we do, but it's something that we believe. Now, this idea that the gospel is something that we do or something that we, ha we perform has been recycled over and over throughout history. One of the ways it's been uh, termed is like the social gospel. And, and what happens is people will read verses like this, and they'll see Jesus washing somebody's feet, okay? And they will read, like in verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then what we kind of can end up doing is thinking, well, that's what a good Christian does. Jesus served people. I should serve people. And that is the extent of what it means to be a Christian, someone who serves sacrificially, who performs the gospel. So people will serve the homeless. They'll work at a nonprofit. They'll fight sex trafficking, go to drug rehab. People will go to church. They'll rake neighbors' yards. They'll care for the poor and the abandoned. And all of that is good stuff, okay? So I don't want you to hear me say that that's not good stuff. And I'll take that even further. I'll say, believing the gospel cannot help but compel us to such actions. Okay? But, at the same time, that is not, those actions are not the center of the Christian faith. 
belief in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins is intended to be the foundation of the Christian life. And, and all we really need to do is look at Judas for this, okay? Jesus washed Judas' feet, but it didn't cleanse him, right? It cleaned his feet physically, but it didn't cleanse him in a saving way. It didn't deal with the stain of sin on his life. How much more if Jesus washing somebody's feet does not cleanse them? Us performing acts of service will not balance out sin that we've done. Because that's how we oftentimes will view it. I've, I've sinned in these ways, so I'm going to offset it by doing these good things. But if Jesus, by him washing somebody's feet physically, how much less our acts of service will accomplish acts of, or an act of salvation for us. To believe that social action is the gospel is a very Old Testament way of thinking and believing. Offer sacrifices over and over, but what happens is it doesn't ultimately address the main problem. Now, last week, Dan talked about how the command upon you, humanity is the gospel. Believing the good news of Jesus. That is primary. That's what I'm saying right now as well. Now, what we're seeing in Jesus as he's washing the feet of his disciples is he's giving us a glimpse of what belief compels. Okay? What belief will look like. What it will motivate us to. So verse 15, it says, Jesus says, For I have given you an example an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus is giving us an example. He's not saying, do this and be saved. He's saying, this is an example. Now follow me in that example. And then he goes on and he talks about how he describes himself as Lord and teacher and master. He says, no one's greater than their master, right? The servants never, or the student is never greater than the teacher. So if Jesus is our master, he's our teacher, the things that we do will never exceed Jesus and will also never compare to what he has done for us. We are called to be his servants, to do what our master has done. He's given us an example of what service might look like, and then we are called to follow in his footsteps. James talks about this, okay? In his book, he says, faith without works is dead. Okay? So faith is primary. But if there's nothing that is compelled by that faith, then it might be that our faith is actually dead. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So if you know these things about who Jesus is, is. If you see what he has done, blessed are you, not only if you believe them, but when you do them, as you do them. So belief is what saves us. But belief always moves us out. It always compels us to action. Part of what is being communicated here is that works do not save us, but they do point to the Savior. Our works do not save us in any way, but they do point others to the Savior. So our service displays the gospel. 
but our service is not the gospel. And we, ha- we have to see this correctly. We have to understand this correctly because the difference is massive, okay? The difference where this leads is either we save ourselves by doing a bunch of good acts. And that is very anti-gospel, anti-biblical, anti-Jesus. We do not, we cannot save ourselves. Where this needs to lead is that Jesus is the one who saves us. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the work of our master, our teacher, our Lord. So we trust in that. We look at what he has done. And then, as we look at him, our lives begin to be shaped by him. We're formed by him so that we might then be compelled to wash people's feet. Or maybe in our age, we can talk about this in serving other people so that they would get glimpses of our Savior. So that they would get glimpses of the servant king. I love that depiction of Jesus. He is the servant king. Now, a clear implication of service flowing from gospel belief is that it's not about serving us. Okay? So when we're, when we're serving others, it's not about us trying to get something in some way. It's not about us making much of ourselves. It's about serving others. It, it's about uh, taking into consideration where someone else is at, looking at their needs and serving them in meaningful ways, blessing them, and then ultimately serving Jesus, okay? So it's not about serving ourselves, but Judas is a helpful example for us here. This is going to be our third point. To him, to him, betrayal of Jesus appears profitable, okay? but it's going to lead only to destruction. So he thinks that he's serving in a meaningful way. And he thinks, his pursuit is that it will profit him in some way. But what we're going to find in Judas is that it will only lead to destruction. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, reads, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So in our story, we're seeing Judas enjoying a foot washing. Right? He's enjoying a lavish meal. He is enjoying a celebration. He is enjoying sitting close to this man who has masses coming after him, hailing him as a king. So he's got all that. And then there's this allure that for him that the religious leaders that he's gone to, that they might someday hail him as a hero who takes down this one that the masses are running after. So we look at Judas, we look at his position, we can think, the dude's got much to gain, right? And he's trying to gain as much as possible. He's trying to profit in as many ways as he can. But what results is not gain for Judas at all. Because what we're going to find him doing in not too long is he will be hanging himself. And so we look at him. We see that it leads to his destruction. But we never sin in a vacuum, okay? 
doesn't matter what sin you commit. It, it never only affects you. It always affects others. I don't care how well you think you hide your sin. It always affects other people. And so we look at the people around Judas. Think about the disciples. If you read through the Gospels and you think about uh, any conversation they have about Judas after he hangs himself, it's crickets. It's silence. And you try to read into that. What do you think they felt? This brother that they'd walked with for three years built depth of relationship, got to know very well, sacrificed for him, loved him, walked with him, knew him so well. And then he goes and stabs their leader in the back. You think there was grief and pain in their lives? Destruction, for sure, in the lives of those who thought they were close to Judas. And we know what happens with Jesus, right? He's going to be destroyed before he gets on a cross and then brutally die as he hangs on a cross. We can look everywhere around Judas' life and we can say, destruction. Pursued a prophet and it all led to destruction for him. And yet, in all of this, all the destruction that he is wreaking, God is going to work good because he is good. Now, when we think about Judas here, there's a profound backstory here that's going on. And we find some of that backstory in a quotation that Jesus has from the Old Testament. So Jesus tells of his betrayal. In verse 18, he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, so this is a quotation from Psalm 41. Okay, now when you read the Bible as a whole, what you find in the Old Testament is that there's all of these symbols, all of these people, all of these events that are pointing forward to Jesus. It's what we call typology. There are these, these types of Jesus, but then they're going to be ultimately fulfilled or reconciled in Jesus. And when we look at David, he is a type of Jesus. A couple of the ways in which we see this happening is David is considered the greatest king of Israel, okay? Jesus is far and above the greatest king of Israel. David was an unexpected king. Jesus, in his own way, was a very unexpected king of Israel. David in his life suffered in some pretty horrendous ways, and we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but Jesus also, in an ultimate way, suffered as well. Now David had a son named Absalom. David provided for Absalom, and there was some contention between them, but David provided for his son. And so we can say, as we just read that verse, in verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We could say that Absalom ate David's bread. He ate David's morsels of bread over and over. But Absalom, over time, grew to despise his father. And so what he did is he hatched a plan where he got himself into an important position. 
And he used that position to convince many people of what a great king he would be. See, Absalom was enticed by the opportunities, the potential opportunities afforded him by becoming a king if he were to betray his dad. And eventually, that's what happens. Absalom gets a great following, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he overthrows his dad from his throne. And he goes and he sits on the king's throne, and what he does is he deals abusively with many people close to his dad. But Absalom's reign was short-lived. You see, Absalom would soon be found hanging from a tree, just like Judas. And so we hear Jesus quoting King David in Psalm 41. And we've got all this backstory of a very similar instance happening in King David's life. And now, in an ultimate way, it's happening in the life of Jesus, the greatest king of Israel. And I look at this, I read all that's going on in these 30 verses here, and and even what's happened prior in the Gospel of John. And I think it's terrifying to look at Judas and all of the clues and the warnings that were given to him. And he still walked down that road. I was reading in Ecclesiastes 5 this week, and I was reminded of, as it speaks there, of how in our foolishness we will not even realize that we are doing evil. We think so often that we see things clearly. But yet, what oftentimes happens is we've got blinders on. And we can't really see what we're doing, where we're going, why we're doing those things. And that's what's happening with Judas. And Jesus is telling all of his disciples all of the story. This is being recorded for us as well, but he's telling all of his disciples this. He's serving them in these sacrificial, lowly ways so that they, and we can include ourselves here, so that we would believe, as it says in verse 9, so that they would believe that Jesus is the servant king, that he is the one who ultimately will save them. And I think this is instructive for us because the reality is we also are so quickly enticed by empty promises or a quick fix. We will chase after this thing thinking that will give us what we really want and in that we'll presume upon God's kindness. We might think consciously or unconsciously, ah, God's a gracious God. He'll just pour out more grace on me. But in that we're presuming upon God's kindness and in that we're cheapening his love for us. And what happens when we pursue profit outside of Jesus, ultimately it's betrayal, it's denial, it's sin, and where that leads is destruction, is destruction. And that's a word of warning for us this morning. Are you seeking life? Are you seeking goodness in and through Jesus Christ? For you will only find it in him. 
and where you hear these promises that you will profit from something outside of Jesus, it is a bold-faced lie, and it will only lead us to destruction. So for our gospel application this morning, the first thing is consider how Jesus has served you. If you're a Christian, consider how Jesus has come to you and he has served you. If you're a non-Christian, hear this call that Jesus offers cleansing to you. He wants to come under you and serve you in offensive but good ways. And so, as you consider how Jesus has served you, as you consider how Jesus is the servant king in your life, I hope that there's a sense that you feel the offensiveness of Jesus' love. That there's offense there, but also that you can revel in the goodness of it. So there's offense. It might make you uncomfortable, but also there is this goodness that you revel in, knowing there is no servant like him. His love for you cannot be compared to You will not find anything close to it anywhere in this world. You might see glimpses of it, but you will never encounter a love like Jesus for you. And and then also, as others serve you, be reminded of how Jesus has served you in an ultimate way. As someone works on your car for you, as someone helps you do a house project, be reminded, this is a glimpse of how Jesus has served me in an ultimate, final way. So consider how Jesus has served you. Secondly, as you consider how Jesus has served you, then serve others, that they may believe in Jesus. We've got to get the order right here, okay? Because what's so easy for us is just to jump to this one, to forget the considering Jesus and what he has done for us, how he has served us, and just here, I need to go serve. Okay? And, and when we do that, we cheapen Jesus' service of us, and we begin to go down the road of works righteousness. Well, this is what I got to do. I got to serve people. This is what it means to be a good Christian. I've got to perform in this way. I've got to earn something from God. Jesus does this, but I need to add this to it so that I can keep my salvation. Jesus, maybe he served, he saved me, but now I've got to make sure that I keep that salvation. And no, we've got to understand, first and foremost, Jesus has served us. Jesus saves us. That is the root, the motivation for us serving others. And if we find ourselves white-knuckling or begrudgingly uh, wanting to serve people, like we hate doing it, what we need to do is take a step back and ask ourselves, why? And usually what we find is that we've lost sight of how good Jesus' service is of us. We don't really see and understand it for how good it really is. So sometimes when someone asks us for help, we might just need to step back and say, man, not right now, I've got to check what's going on here. Or maybe in the midst of service, you just raise that with somebody, and you're like, I know, this is very un-Minnesotan, right? But you just say, man, I didn't want to serve, but, but could you help me with understanding my heart, what's going on in my heart, why I didn't want to do that? I consider you a, a friend, 
And yet here I am, I didn't want to serve you to understand what's really compelling us and motivating us, to understand what has our affection. But if we see Jesus' service of us correctly, if it hits us with the way it's intended to hit us, then the call is to serve others. Give others glimpses of how Jesus has served you. And sometimes, sometimes that service might take the form of, form of you asking somebody to help you. As uncomfortable as that might be, serving others might be you giving someone else an opportunity to serve you. So consider how Jesus has served you. Then serve others, being motivated by Jesus' service. And then lastly, stay near to Jesus. Stay near to the light. Verse 30 ends, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Hear how abrupt that is? He immediately went out, and it was night. When we walk out of here, there's going to be spiritual darkness all around us, even sitting here. Spiritual darkness all around us. It's natural. It's the world that we live in. John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus doesn't want us to remain in darkness. And the means by which we, we do that is we stay near to him. Notice Judas, as he walks into the night, into darkness, what's he doing? He's walking away from Jesus. He's walking away from the light. And so part of the call for us here is to stay near to Jesus. When we walk out of here today, it's going to be so easy for us to lose sight of how Jesus has served us, and in so doing to betray or deny, to sin against Jesus. And so hear this call to stay near the light, to draw near to Jesus. And that's what we want to do in these moments that follow. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and in this, the intention is that we would draw near to Jesus. And as Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover, what we get to do this morning is to celebrate the ultimate Passover, the final Passover. And so I want to invite you guys uh, in the moments that follow to come and to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup that remind us of Jesus' sacrifice. So for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, who see Jesus as Lord and Savior, as teacher, I want to invite you guys to do that. If you're not a Christian, this is an invitation for you to receive Jesus in the sense that he would become your servant. In that what he did on the cross is payment for your sins. So hear that invitation to come and receive. So in these moments, we want to remember how Jesus has served us, how he has sacrificially hung on a bloody cross, how he has bore our wrath for us. And in doing this, he's giving us a representative of
a new covenant. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're being reminded of the new covenant, the new way of, rela- of God relating to his people. We're being reminded of what Jesus has done, something that we cannot do for ourselves. That's why Jesus had to go to the lowest position and serve us, because we could not even do that for ourselves. And so, as we celebrate this, as we remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts as well and to see, to inquire, how are we not believing in Jesus? How is his sacrifice for us not sufficient? How are we trying to add something to what Jesus has already done? So the call is to come and to celebrate, to see the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done. I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then want to invite you guys to come and partake of this as you feel led. If anyone wants to talk or pray in the midst of this, I'll be off to the side and would be happy to do that with you guys.